An old man with steel-rimmed spectacles and very dusty clothes sat by the side of the road. There was a pontoon bridge across the river, and carts, trucks, and men, women and children were crossing it. The mule-drawn carts staggered up the steep bank from the bridge, with soldiers helping push against the spokes of the wheels. The trucks ground up and away, heading out of it all and the peasants plodded along in ankle-deep dust, but the old man sat there without moving. He was too tired to go any farther. It was my business to cross the bridge, explore the bridgehead beyond, and find out to what point the enemy had advanced. I did this and returned over the bridge. There were not so many carts now and very few people on foot, but the old man was still there. Where do you come from, I asked. From San Carlos, he said and smiled. That was his native town, and so it gave him pleasure to mention it. And he smiled. I was taking care of animals, he explained. Oh, I said, not quite understanding. Yes, he said. I stayed, you see, taking care of animals. I was the last one to leave the town of San Carlos. He did not look like a shepherd nor a herdsman, and I looked at his black dusty clothes and his gray dusty face and his steel room spectacles and said what animals were they? Various animals, he said, and shook his head. I had to leave them. I was watching the bridge in the African-looking country of the Ebro Delta and wondering how long now it would be before we would see the enemy, and listening all the while for the first noises that would signal that ever-mysterious event called contact. And the old man still sat there. What animals were they, I asked. There were three animals altogether, he explained. There were two goats and a cat, and then there were four pairs of pigeons. And you had to leave them, I asked. Yes, because of the artillery. The captain told me to go because of the artillery. And you have no family, I asked, watching the far end of the bridge where a few last carts were hurrying down the slope of the bank. No, he said, only the animals. I stated, the cat, of course, will be all right. A cat can look out for itself, but I cannot think what will become of the others. What politics have you, I asked. I'm without politics, he said. I'm 76 years old. I've come 12 kilometers now, and I think now I can go no farther. This is not a good place to stop, I said. If you can make it, there are trucks up the road where it forks to Tortosa. I will wait a while, he said, and then I will go. Where do the trucks go? Towards Barcelona, I told him. I know no one in that direction, he said, but thank you very much. Thank you again, very much. He looked at me very blankly and tiredly, then said, having to share his worries with someone. The cat will be all right, I am sure. There is no need to be unquiet about the cat but the others. Now what do you think about the others? Why, they'll probably come through it all right. You think so? Why not, I said, watching the far bank where now there were no carts. But what will they do under the artillery? When I was told to leave because of the artillery. Did you leave the dove cage unlocked, I asked? Yes. Then they'll fly. Yes, certainly they'll fly, but the others. It's better not to think about the others, he said. If you are rested, I would go. I urged, get up and try to walk now. Thank you, he said, and got to his feet, swayed from side to side, and then sat back downwards in the dust. I was taking care of animals, he said dully, but no longer to me. I was only taking care of my animals. There was nothing to do about him. It was Easter Sunday, and the fascists were advancing toward the Ebro. It was a gray, overcast day with a low ceiling, so their planes were not up. That and the fact that cats know how to look after themselves was all the good luck the old man would ever have.
In the old days, Horton's Bay was a lumbering town. No one who lived in it was out of sound of the big saws in the mill by the lake. Then one year, there were no more logs to make lumber. The lumber schooners came into the bay and were loaded with the cut of the mill that stood stacked in the yard. All the piles of lumber were carried away. The big mill building had all its machinery that was removable taken out and hoisted on board one of the schooners by the men who had worked in the mill. The schooner moved out of the bay toward the open lake, carrying the two great saws, the traveling carriage that hurled the logs against the revolving circular saws, and all the rollers, wheels, belts, and iron piled on a whole deep load of lumber, its open holes covered with canvas and lashed tight. The sails of the schooner filled and it moved out into the open lake, carrying with it everything that had made the mill a mill in Horton's Bay a town. The one-story bunkhouse, the eating house, the company store, the mill offices, and the big mill itself stood deserted in the acres of sawdust that covered the swampy meadow by the shore of the bay. Ten years later there was nothing of the mill left except the broken white limestone of its foundation showing through the swampy second growth as Nick and Marjorie rode along the shore. They were trolling along the edge of the channel bank where the bottom dropped off suddenly from sandy shallows to twelve feet of dark water. They were trolling on their way to set night lines for rainbow trout. There's our old ruin, Nick Marjorie said. Nick Rowing looked at the white stone and the green tree. There it is, he said. Can you remember when it was a mill, Mar Marjorie asked. I can just remember, Nick. Nick said nothing. They rode on out of sight of the mill, following the shoreline. Then Nick cut across the bay. They aren't striking, he said. No, Marjorie said. She was intent on the rod all the time they trolled. Even when she talked, she loved the fish. She loved the fish with Nick. Closing beside the boat, a big trout broke the surface of the water. Nick pulled hard on one oar so the boat would turn and the bait, spinning far behind, would pass where the trout was feeding. All the trout's back came up out of the water. The minnows jumped wildly. They sprinkled the surface like a handful of shot thrown in the water. Another trout broke water, feeding on the other side of the boat. They're feeding, Marjorie said, but they won't strike, Nick said. He rode the boat around to troll past both the feeding fish and headed it for the point. Marjorie did not reel in until the boat touched the shore. They pulled the boat up the beach and Nick lifted out a pail of live perch. The perch swam in the water pail. Nick caught three of them with his hands and cut their heads off and skinned them while Marjorie chased with her hands in the bucket. Finally caught a perch, cut its head off and skinned it. Nick looked at her fish. You don't want to take that ventral fin out, he said. It'll be alright for bait, but it's better with the ventral fin in. He hooked each of the skin perch through the tail. There were two hooks attached to a leader on each rod. Then Marjorie rode the boat out over the channel bank, holding the line in her teeth and looking toward Nick, who stood on the shore, holding the rod and letting the line run out from the reel. That's about right, he called. Should I let it drop? Marjorie called back, holding the line in her hand. Sure, let it go. Marjorie dropped the line overboard and watched the bait go down through the water. She came in with the boat and ran the second line out the same way. Each time, Nick set a heavy slab of driftwood across the butt of the rod to hold it and solid and propped it up at an angle with a small slab. He reeled in the slack line so the line ran taut. 
out to where the bait rested on the sandy floor of the channel and set the click on the reel. Then a trout feeding on the bottom took the bait it would run with, taking line out of the reel in a rush and making the reel sling with the click on. Marjorie rode up the point a little way so she would not disturb the line. She pulled hard on the oars and the boat went up the beach. Little waves came in with it. Marjorie stepped out on the boat and Nick pulled the boat, the boat high up on the beach. What's the matter, Nick? Marjorie asked. I don't know, Nick said, getting wood for a fire. They made a fire with driftwood. Marjorie went to the boat and brought a blanket. The evening breeze blew the smoke toward the point, so Marjorie spread the blanket out between the fire and the lake. Marjorie sat on the blanket with her back to the fire and waited for Nick. He came over and sat down beside her on the blanket. In back of them there was a close second-growth timber of the point, and in front was the bay with the mouth of Horton's Creek. It was not quite dark. The firelight went as far as the water. They could both see the two steel rods at an angle over the dark water. The fire glinted on the reels. Marjorie unpacked the basket of supper. I don't feel like eating, said Nick. Come on and eat, Nick. All right. They ate without talking and watched the two rods and the fire light in the water. There's going to be a moon tonight, said Nick. He looked across the bay to the hills that were beginning to sharpen against the sky. Beyond the hills, he knew the moon was coming up. I know it, Marjorie said happily. You know everything, Nick said. Oh, Nick, please cut it out. Please don't be that way. I can't help it, Nick said. You do. You know everything. That's the trouble. You know you do. Marjorie did not say anything. I've taught you everything. You know you do. I've taught you everything. You know you do. What don't you know anyway? Oh, shut up, Marjorie said. There comes the moon. They sat on the blanket without touching each other and watched the moon rise. You don't have to talk, silly, Marjorie said. What's really the matter? I don't know. Of course you know. No, I don't. Go on and say it. Nick looked on at the moon coming up over the hills. It isn't fun anymore. He was afraid to look at Marjorie. Then he looked at her. She sat there with her back toward him. He looked at her back. It isn't fun anymore. Not any of it. She didn't say anything. He went on. I feel as though everything has was gone to hell inside of me. I don't know, Marge. I don't know what to say. He looked on at her back. Isn't love any fun, Marjorie said? No, Nick said. Marjorie stood up. Nick sat there, his, his head in his hands. I'm going to take the boat. Marjorie called to him. You can walk back around the point. All right, Nick said. I'll push the boat off for you. You don't need to, she said. She was afloat in the boat on the water with the moonlight on it. Nick went back and lay down with his face in the blanket by the fire. He could hear Marjorie rowing on the water. He lay there for a long time. He lay there while he heard Bill come into the clearing. Walking around through the woods, he felt Bill coming up to the fire. Bill didn't touch him either. Did she go all right, Bill said? Yes, Nick said, lying, his face on the blanket. Have a scene. No, there wasn't any scene. How do you feel? Oh, go away, Bill. Go away for a while. Bill selected a sandwich from the lunch basket and walked over to look at the rod. Outside, a woman walked along the wet street lamp-lit sidewalk through the sleet and snow. Inside, in the Fine Arts Institute of the sixth floor of the YWCA building, 1020 McGee Street, a merry crowd of soldiers from Camp Funston and Fort Leavenworth Fox trotted and one-stepped with girls from the Fine Arts School. 
while a sober-faced young man pounded out the latest jazz music as he watched the moving figures. In a corner, a private in the signal corps was discussing Whistler with a black-haired girl who heartily agreed with him. The private had been a member of the art colony at Chicago before the war was declared. Three men from Funston were wandering arm-in-arm along the walls, looking at the exhibition of paintings by Kansas City artists. The piano player stopped. The dancers clapped and cheered, and he swung into the long, long trail of winding, an infantry corporal dancing with a swift-moving girl in a red dress bent his head close to hers and provided something about a girl in Chautauqua, Kansas. In the corridor, a group of girls surrounded a tow-headed young artilleryman and applauded his imitation of his pal Bill, challenging the colonel who had forgotten the password. The music stopped again, and the solemn pianist rose from his stool and walked out into the hall for a drink. A crowd of men rushed up to the girl in the red dress to plead for the next dance. Outside, the woman walked along the wet, lamp-lit sidewalk. It was the first dance for soldiers to be given under the auspices of the War Camp Community Service. Forty girls of the art school, chaperoned by Miss Winifred Sexton, secretary of the school, and Miss J.F. Binney, were the hostesses. The idea was formulated by J.P. Robertson of the War Camp Community Service. Announcements were sent to the Commandant at Camp Funston in Fort Leavenworth, inviting all soldiers on leave. Posters made by the girl students were put up at Leavenworth on the interim and trains. The first dance will be followed by others at various clubs and schools throughout the city, according to Mr. Robertson. The pianist took his seat again, and the soldiers made a dash for partners. In the intermission, the soldiers drank to the girls in fruit punch. The girl in red, surrounded by a crowd of men in olive drab, seated herself at the piano. The men and the girls gathered around and sang until midnight. The elevator had stopped running, and so the jolly crowd bunched down the six flights of stairs and rushed to waiting motor cars. After the last car had gone, the woman walked along the wet sidewalk through the sleet and looked up at the dark windows of the sixth floor.